Well, you can turn to Luke chapter 16. We'll be in verses 14 through 18. Again, you might want to have a copy of uh, the word there in front of you. Again, the sort of a difficult passage that might help you to follow along there. I'm not sure where you're at in terms of your Bible reading this year. Hopefully, by God's grace, you've been able to read the Scriptures consistently. But maybe as you've been reading through the Bible, you've come across places where your first thought isn't, wow, isn't God amazing? Your first thought is, why is this in here? And what do I do with it? You know, we might think about places like Deuteronomy 22.8. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet or a, or a fence for your roof, that you may not bring guilt upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Or maybe you were in Leviticus and wondering what is going on in something like 12 verse 3, and on the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Or something like Deuteronomy 14.8, and the pig, because it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud, is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. One of the questions that comes up in my mind is, are we ignoring passages like that? Maybe you have even heard the accusation that you're just picking and choosing what verses you want to hold on to and what verses you want to say no longer apply to you. In fact, often the accusation is one of hypocrisy. And it's oftentimes leveled at those who want to hang on to a biblical view of sexuality and gender, but we eat bacon. So are we... Indeed, hypocrites, have we traded in? Are we, are we picking and choosing based on our own preferences? Have we sought to undermine the authority of Scripture? I think the words of Christ in our text this morning are a help to us. And by God's grace, they'll not only equip us to, to be better readers of our Bible and more confident in his word, but ultimately we want to know Christ. We want to know him. There's nothing more valuable in this life. And I think our text helps us to know Christ and his ministry and his mission and his work. So our, our text sort of serves as a bridge between these two parables that have to do with riches, that have to do with our money. Previous to verse 14, which is where we're picking up today, Jesus had been instructing his disciples that, that, that they can only serve one master. But, but apparently the Pharisees were, they, they weren't the main audience, but apparently they were within earshot and they were listening in. And so this sets the stage for another head-to-head -head confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders called Pharisees. And what Jesus does in verses 14 through 15 is he sets out to expose the heart of the self-righteous. The ministry of Jesus exposes the heart of the self-righteous. Look there in verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Now remember, our last passage was about uh, the, the idolatrous desire of serving money over God. Jesus said it's impossible to serve two masters. You will either love the one and despise the other, or you will serve the one and, and not serve the other. You cannot serve God and money, Jesus said. 
And so we learned last week that as followers of Christ, we're meant to love God and to use money. And that we don't want to fall into this little prosperity gospel thing where, where those two things get flipped, where you, you want to use God in order to get money. You cannot serve God and money. And so as these Pharisees are listening in, Luke gives us a little, a little editorial note there that these guys are lovers of money. We're not surprised by that charge, right? Jesus has been challenging this audience that included the Pharisees to, to, to give to the poor, to invite the down and out to their, their banquets. Remember, don't invite those that can just give you something in return. Instead, invite the down and out to your own banquets. Stop turning away the needy. And in the refusal to serve others, they're demonstrating this heart of love for money, this idolatrous desire that Jesus warned about. And so as they eavesdrop on this conversation between Jesus and his disciples, they're condemned because they love money. And so when they're confronted with the authoritative teaching of Christ, the, the, the only response they can come up with is to ridicule him. To ridicule him. They stoop to this level. They turn from listening to sarcasm. Sometimes this gets loose and pops a little bit. They seek to escape the pangs of conviction by mockery. The, the, the idea in the, in the original is that they turn up their nose at Jesus. And we still sort of use that saying, don't we? They turn up their nose at Jesus. You see, chapter 15, verse 2, remember with the parables that we talked about with the, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son, that started in chapter 15, verse 2 with the Pharisees grumbling, and here it's even elevated to the point of mocking and ridicule. They've moved to open disdain of Christ for His teaching. You know, I was reading this week about that great 20th century preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He preached at you know, the Westminster Chapel there in London. And one day Lloyd-Jones was asked to address the students at Oxford. And Oxford is like the bastion of academia at this point. You know, you're talking about J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis being your professors. And following his sermon, there was, there was to be a, a Q&A where the students could come and they can ask uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones their, their questions. And one of the students, he... he, he mocks Martin Lloyd-Jones. I keep wanting to say Martin Luther. Um, he was, it's like Reformation Day coming up, right? Um, but he mocked Martin Lloyd-Jones with this implication. You're at Oxford, but this sermon sounds like it was meant for farmers and the everyday laborer. And this sort of, this sort of attitude reminds me of the Pharisees mocking Jesus. Don't, doesn't he know who we are? Doesn't he know our, our credentials? And as Lloyd-Jones sits there and, and everybody mocks him, he, he says, I, I didn't understand why that would be a problem. He said, after all, undergraduates and graduates, for that matter, of Oxford are just ordinary, common, human clay and miserable sinners like everyone else. He said their needs are pre precisely the same as those of the farmer or the working class laborer. 
the, the authoritative teaching of Jesus is hitting the Pharisees in their desire to self-justify, to make themselves look good before men. And he's exposing their hearts because they're lovers of money rather than lovers of God. And so Jesus, again, he goes head to head with a scathing rebuke in verse 15. He says this, You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an, abo- is an abomination in the sight of God. So Jesus accuses the Pharisees here of seeking to justify themselves before men. In other words, they're living for the outward appearance of righteousness. We've seen that the Pharisees are, are experts at, at making themselves look good to the crowds, to the masses. They've won the applause even of many of their fellow Israelites with their outward displays of righteousness. And so they're living for for the immediate gratification of human approval. And they're not living for the delayed gratification of pleasing and glorifying God and seeking God's approval. See, the Pharisees thought they could, they could do both. They could live for the applause of man, and certainly God must be pleased with all of, our, all of our efforts here. So they result to ridicule Jesus. Now, what, else, what other option do they have? As those who seek to justify themselves before God, they've just been cut to the heart, exposed for their love of money, And those who seek to justify themselves must shift the demands of Jesus in order to meet those so-called demands, because otherwise they stand clearly condemned. It's likely that the Pharisees were working under this, this assumption that was common, that the presence of money meant the presence of God's blessing, and the absence of money meant the absence of God's blessing or even the presence of God's curse. And so perhaps the Pharisees are looking at their their love and desire for money and think, well, yeah, because that means I'm blessed by God. We know elsewhere in the Gospels that they would actually show off how much they're giving to the temple to try to prove something, again, to justify themselves before men. And so these Pharisees are believing that not only are they receiving the approval of man, but they must be just in God's sight. So the major problem with this that Jesus drives at is that God knows their hearts. God knows their hearts. He can see what is hidden from others. He can see what their fellow Israelites cannot see. He probes the deep recesses and knows the desires, the thoughts, and intention of every person's heart. You see, the Pharisees might be able to deceive those around them. They might be able to justify themselves before men. But no one can deceive God because He peers into the hearts. He knows what they truly love. He knows what they are serving. He knows what they are living for. He knows that they love the praise of other people. He knows that they love money. And He knows ultimately that these are demonstrations that they love themselves. So God knows their heart. Jesus also says God hates this sort of self-exaltation that the Pharisees are engaging in. What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of 
God. He knows their heart and he hates what's, what's in their heart. He rejects those things, Jesus says, that are exalted among men. In our context, it's the Pharisees that are exalting money, ultimately exalting themselves. They're seeking to self-justify. And Jesus says this sort of self-exaltation, this desire to justify yourself before men, it is an abomination to God. Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. This, this word, is a, it's a strong word, a strong term of rejection. The idea is that it's something that's revolting to the Lord. Sometimes, you know, as you're reading your Old Testament, you may find that there are places where, where these offerings are, are offered up and they're sweet-smelling sacrifices to the Lord. Well, an abomination is the opposite of that. It carries the idea of a, a foul Rotten odor. It's repulsive to the Lord. So these Pharisees are seeking to justify themselves before men, and God hates that. And so they have to ridicule Christ to, to sort of wiggle out from their conviction. You know, one of the things about the gospel is that it teaches us that we can be realistic about our sins. We, we can be honest about our sins. In fact, there is no coming to Christ without a clear sight of what sin is. There is no coming to Christ without seeing the, the reality and the consequences and the penalty of sin. And the gospel teaches us that Christ has, has met the requirement of the law. He has suffered in our place for our sins. So we don't have to try to undermine. We don't have to try to wiggle out from under. We can, we can admit, yes, I've fallen short of the glory of God. And we also don't have to try to live for the applause of men. We don't have to try to live for the approval of others. We can be honest about our sin because we're not accepted by God on the basis of our own righteousness, on the basis of what our neighbors think about us, but in union with Christ. We are credited with the very righteousness of Christ. We are accepted not on the basis of our own works, but on the basis of the righteous life and sacrificial death and victorious resurrection of Jesus. But as long as someone remains blind to their sin, they cannot see the importance of the ministry of Christ. And so you have these Pharisees that are there mocking, ridiculing Jesus. That's the problem with the Pharisees. Their love of money and their desire to justify themselves before men, it, it, it explains why they are deaf to the teaching of Jesus. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. They can't see the glory of Christ. They are blinded from seeing the glory of Christ. So then Jesus turns his attention then to the law and the prophets and its relation to this new area, er, not area, era that Jesus has come to institute. Our second point this morning, the ministry of Jesus explains the Old Testament. Look there in verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone, the ESV says, forces his way into it. 
So Jesus makes an interesting claim here that the law and the prophets were in full effect, so to speak, until the ministry of John. In other words, and we saw this early on in Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2, the John the Baptist's arrival is an indicator that something drastic is changing in the way that God is unfolding His plan of salvation history. We saw it even early on in Luke. With We saw the Spirit is, is active and working. Man, this something new is happening. And it began in Luke with the arrival of John the Baptist. We saw when we were walking through these texts that John the Baptist serves as sort of a transitional figure between the the old and the new covenants. His job was to prepare the way for the arrival of the Messiah, to prepare the way for Christ by preaching repentance. You see, all the prophets that had preceded John the Baptist, they had to point forward with their writings, but John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, got to physically point at Jesus and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John is not the Savior. He had a a miraculous birth, not as miraculous as the virgin birth of Christ. But he's clear, and Luke is clear. John is not the Savior. He's not the king who would come to rule on the throne of David. He's not the one that would usher in this new era. He was not the beloved son whom God spoke at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He's not the one who's come to seek and to save the lost. He was simply the one who would prepare the way through his preaching of repentance. So he's sort of the the last of these prophets that pointed forward to the Messiah. And then Jesus says, kind of a a difficult phrase to understand. You know, the, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, Jesus has gone about preaching the kingdom of God. And everyone forces his way into it. Really, I think, I think the idea in the text, if you look in the ESV, there's an alternate translation down there at the bottom. I think it's, that's probably the better translation, that, that all would be insistently urged to enter the kingdom. I think contextually it makes more sense. We know that Jesus here is facing opposition. It's not that Jesus came and everyone was like, I've got to get into his kingdom. He's actually faced much opposition in the Gospel of Luke. But what has happened in Luke is that the preaching of the Gospel has gone forth. Jesus has said, go out into the highways and byways and and compel them to come in. So I think the idea is that everyone is being urged with the preaching of the Gospel. They're being urged to enter into this kingdom through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. This is what John the Baptist's ministry was. This is what Jesus has been doing, and this is what he sent out his disciples to do, to proclaim the kingdom of God. And so this, this proclamation, the law and the prophets lasted until John. I, you know, I would say like through the ministry of John. But this proclamation of the good news, it, it marks a new era. Something fundamental changed with the arrival and the ministry and the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God. The time of, the time of the law and the prophets is coming to an end. But that doesn't mean that the law failed. It doesn't mean that the law is actually unimportant. 
Look at verse 17. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. The question that arises is how can the law and the prophets be until John, in verse 16, and in verse 17, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. You know that word dot, it would be like the small mark that would change one Hebrew letter. If you look down at your Bible, you can see that most likely, your, even your English words, they have these feet on the bottom of the letter. It'd be that one of those little marks. Not one of those will pass away. It will not become void. It will not fail. Well, how do we, how do we reconcile this difficult teaching from Christ? I think we get some help even in the Gospel of Luke if, as we think about following the death and resurrection of Jesus. What, what did Jesus say about the law and the prophets? Remember, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus. He meets two followers there. They don't recognize Jesus. So after explaining to Jesus what happened to Jesus, he says to them in 24, 25, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And then what? What did Jesus do? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So look at, look at the Old Testament. Look at the law and the prophets. Now let me show you how this was a, a foreshadow of who I am and what I came to do. He says something similar just a few verses later when he's gathered with, with the disciples in 24:44, He says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So how do we put these two together? Well, it's that we actually understand the Old Testament in its fullest sense when we see it in light of Christ and see that it was pointing forward to the coming of Jesus. The newness of the kingdom, the newness of this new era does not cancel the law per se, but fulfills it. That's why Jesus can say it will not become void. We're not under the Old Covenant any longer. But it's not as if the Old Testament doesn't matter or we can just rip it out of our Bibles. It, we, we understand it more fully now because we see how it was pointing us forward to Jesus. You see, even as we read the, the Law and the Prophets, we can learn much about our need for Christ. We can learn a lot about the holiness of God in Christ. We can learn about the moral demands of God. And we can see the grace of God in Christ as we look into the Old Testament. I think law and prophets is, is that's what it means, the, the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures. And so that's a lot, I think, to, to sort of try to take in and, and to understand. So maybe, maybe we can use some of our time this morning to take a few examples and see maybe how this dynamic works out, that the law is fulfilled by Christ, but it has not failed. The law is not binding on new covenant Christians, but it is not void. How, how do we understand this in, in practice? 
The Old Testament is still God's authoritative revelation, and and it's profitable for us as Christians. Well, We mentioned Deuteronomy 22.8 in the introduction about building a, a fence around your roof if you build a new house. Now, I bought my house used, so I'm exempt, but I know some of you guys built a new house recently, and you haven't put a fence around the roof. Are you in sin? Are, there's a clear, a clear command here. Are you in sin for not doing so? Well, we sort of intuitively know the answer is no, but what we get in our text is that Jesus gives us the reason why, that He has fulfilled the law, but, but it's also not void, so we can learn from the law and we can see things that are true about God and true about us. You see, this, as we said, the, the stipulations of the old covenant are not binding on those who are in Christ. But the law is useful and it's helpful for us. How so? Well, one thing we can do is, is see that, that this verse... This very specific verse that was given to Israel in the context of the Old Covenant, what was it designed to do? It was designed to help Israel love their neighbor. And so so we we can glean from the law because we're under the law of Christ, and the law of Christ is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So we can see that God is the type of God that wants you to love and care about the safety of your neighbor, even the way that you build your house. My brother-in-law has a door that you open the door and it leads to like a 20-foot drop-off. There's no deck. They never actually built the deck. Well, love of neighbor looks like probably keeping that locked. We're challenged by passages like this. Not necessarily that we're sinning if we don't build a fence around our roof, but to consider how we might love our neighbor even down to the details of, well, is my my house a safe place? You see, we're freed from these, you know, from having blueprints on how we ought to build our homes, but we are driven to love God and neighbor. In that sense, the law is helpful. It has not become void, even though we are not under its stipulations. We also mentioned circumcision from Leviticus 12.3. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Again, we may have a sense intuitively that this is not a, a law that rests on those who are in Christ, you're not sinning if you, if you don't circumcise your baby on the eighth day, but how, how then does our passage help us? Well, let's think, think for a minute. Circumcision was actually not instituted under the, the Mosaic Covenant first. It was under the Abrahamic Covenant, and it was to continue for all males that were born into the family of Abraham as a picture of their inclusion in this, this covenant family. In fact, if a Gentile hoped to join the covenant community and they were not circumcised, they were to be circumcised. It was to serve as a reminder that that there's a greater need. It was to serve as a reminder that that this physical circumcision points for the need of what Moses would call, "You you need a circumcised heart, you need a new heart. You need to be made alive. This physical act is a picture pointing to a need that you have. It doesn't actually accomplish your salvation. Moses and the prophets warned Israel that they needed heart change, not just a physical sign of the covenants. 
And so it's interesting in the Old Covenant, you think, think the nation of Israel and Moses, not everyone who received the covenant sign of circumcision was actually born again or actually saved. Some would go on to exercise faith in God. right? And Paul makes this point in the book of Romans where he says, was Abraham counted righteous before or after his circumcision? Well, he was counted righteous before. So some would go on to exercise faith in God, and some remained in their sin. There was this, in the Old Covenant, it was a, a mixed community of unbelievers and believers. But we find, after the ministry of Jesus in the book of Acts, that in the New Covenants, circumcision is no longer the sign. It's no longer necessary. As the gospel went to the Gentiles, it became evident that, that circumcision is not the sign of the new covenants. It also became clear that one of the main differences between the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant and the new covenant is this. We said the, the old covenant was made up of those who are both believer and unbeliever. The old covenant, by and large, was entered into by birth. If you obeyed, you received blessings. If you disobeyed, you received curses. The new covenant, however, is not entered in through, into through birth. It's not through family descent. It's not being tied to a particular nation. The new covenant is entered into by new birth. Only those then who are born again are partakers in this new covenant. There, are, there is no mixed community in the new covenant of those who are saved and those who are unsaved. It's not made up of believers and unbelievers. Where are we going? That's a lot. Where are we going? We're going here. Only those who are born again then should take the sign of the new covenant, which isn't circumcision. What is it? It's baptism. Following the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he commands his disciples to go and preach the gospel and, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The act that identifies you with the work of Christ in the new covenant is baptism. I like the way one author said it. He says, circumcision pointed to the need for spiritual heart surgery. Baptism pictures the accomplishment of that surgery. I think Paul links these two together in Colossians 2. He says, In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. So you've received what circumcision told you you needed, which was a new heart. By putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him, now he goes to baptism. And baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your, your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So, the fundamental problem, the reason, the reason we refuse to baptize infants in our church is that it undermines the newness of the new covenant. It operates as if there can be someone in the new covenant who has not yet been born again. And that's just not the nature of the new covenant. It's to misunderstand and misapply the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, we 
in our church, we consider that a second-tier issue. There's, there's brothers in Christ who are, we, w- we would say they're wrong on this, but not all of them are preaching a false gospel. So what can we do? We can rejoice. Remember, the, the law and the, and the prophets are still uh, have not failed. We can rejoice as we read the book of Genesis and think about the covenant that God has made with Abraham. We can, we can rejoice that God is indeed bringing blessing to all nations by calling out, out for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And these converts who are coming to Jesus Christ, taking on themselves this, this sign of the covenant and receiving baptism after they've come to know Christ. You know, the last thing we mentioned in the introduction was these dietary laws. What about pigs and shellfish and all that. You know, there were certainly practical reasons, and you could probably take a sermon on each one of these. I'm just trying to help you with a sort of a general idea of when I'm reading the Old Testament, how can I see this pointing forward to Christ? How can I apply this to my own life? Am I being a hypocrite if I'm not obeying this? But as you read these dietary laws, there were certainly some practical benefit to these things. But overall, like the laws of uncleanness, this was part of those laws, it was to set Israel apart as a distinct people among the nations. They served a holy God, so they were to be holy themselves, even down to their very diets. You know, there are lots of things we can say about you know, these food laws and why they existed. But for the sake of time, I want to make uh, this point of how these laws pointed forward to the promises being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So there's a story in Acts chapter 10 that you may know about. It's Peter having a vision and the sheet comes down and there's unclean animals on this sheet. You know, animals that Israel was forbidden to eat. And Peter, who is a devout Jewish believer, has has never broken the dietary laws. But Jesus uh, shows him this vision and tells him to, to go eat of these animals who are, according to the Mosaic law, unclean. And Peter's way too righteous to obey God, right? He's so funny. He says, not me, Lord. I would never disobey you. And God says, then obey me. God says, what God has made clean, do not call unclean. It's clear, even Jesus did this when he says, not what goes into your body that defiles a man, it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles, or out of the heart that defiles a man. But it's clear that these dietary restrictions are no longer binding in the way that they used to. So it's not unbelief, it's not sin, it's not picking and choosing to say, no, I'm going to have a bacon cheeseburger for lunch. What's interesting, though, about what's happening in Acts 10 is it's not primarily about food. I praise the Lord that it's in there, but it's not primarily about food. Peter is told right after this vision to get up and go talk to a man named Cornelius and preach the gospel to him. The issue is Cornelius was a Gentile. And they were considered to be unclean. They were uncircumcised. They weren't part of the covenant community. Again, unclean. But Peter is told what God has called clean. Do not call unclean. 
those unclean animals in Acts chapter 10 that, that Peter saw, pigs and snakes and scorpions and these things that they weren't supposed to eat, serve as a picture, as God is teaching Peter, it's a picture of the Gentiles, of us. Yet through the redemptive work of Christ, through His death and resurrection, that which is unclean might be declared clean. He's teaching Peter that the gospel is going to extend not just to the Jewish people, but to Jews and Gentiles, that all, whoever has faith in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, might be cleansed and purified and forgiven of their sins. The reality is because of sin we were unclean like Cornelius. But by the grace of God, if you've turned and trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus on your behalf, you have been made clean. So that the Lord can say to Peter, do not declare unclean what I have called clean. We see then that the law and the prophets were pointing forward to this work. They were teaching about what Jesus would accomplish. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and of the, the promises of the prophets. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. It has not failed. It has not passed away, but it has been fulfilled by Christ. And we, as those in the new covenant, we could see more clearly than ever God's intention for the Old Testament. Let's look at verse 18 quickly. Why, Why in the world... Is this here? There's a lot of questions about the placement of verse 18. My hope for today is to answer this question. Why is verse 18 there? I'll do that relatively quickly. Next week, what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at verse 18, and we'll talk about what the Bible teaches about divorce and remarriage. You know, So I know you guys just love topical sermons. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I was telling somebody... When Mark Dever, his first topical sermon ever at his church was the importance of expositional preaching. So we love expositional preaching. We will do that 99% of the time. But next week, we'll look at verse 18 and we'll sort of expand to try to figure out what does the Bible teach about divorce and remarriage. But today, why, why is this verse even here? Look there at verse 18. After talking about the law and how it's it's, it's coming to a conclusion in some sense, but it's not void. Jesus says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So this verse does seem to be sort of in an odd place. So we have to ask, what is it, what is it doing here? There's no accidents in the Word of God. There's no mistakes. You know, you read some commentators and they're like, oh, I bet somebody put that in later. No, I don't. I don't. That's not how the Spirit inspired the Scriptures. Why would Jesus go to divorce? Well, I think it accomplishes two things. Jesus has just said it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And so I think he's, he points to marriage to, to talk about the unfailing nature of the law. Just like marriage is meant to be permanent, the law, though again, its stipulations are not binding, It endures, like marriage is meant to endure. It endures by then pointing forward to Christ. 
So I think one of the reasons it's here in its place is to make that point that it's an illustration of the un, unending nature or, or helpfulness of the law. Another thing I think it does is it emphasizes as well that, that this new era in Jesus Christ does not undermine the moral imperatives of God. Perhaps Jesus is doing what Paul does in a place like Romans 6, 1, where he's anticipating some pushback or an argument where the Pharisees might be assuming, well, if this is a new era, that's good news that I'm meant to, I'm urged to accept this good news, does it just lead to all kinds of moral anarchy? And Jesus makes the point, no. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus in, in some ways intensifies the law. In the new covenant, we are under the law of Christ. And the law of Christ is again is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And since God doesn't change, we aren't surprised that, that the moral commands that He gives to His people do not change. He has similar moral requirements that reflect the moral requirements that are given in the old covenants. And so I, I think what we see is this. We see the beauty of Christ in that He both saves and, verse 18, He transforms. He saves apart from the works of the law, but then transforms His people into those who walk in righteousness. Obviously, not perfectly, not even well at times, but He's transforming His people. We are justified by grace alone. But that grace doesn't lead to a life of rebellion and sin, but to a life of growth into the image of Jesus Christ. So the words and the instruction of, of Christ this morning, I think they keep us from two extremes. The one might be worldly indulgence. Does this good news preach to me mean that I can indulge all the lusts of the flesh? No, it keeps us from that extreme. But it also keeps us from religious hypocrisy having to justify ourselves. Instead, we are welcomed in by grace alone and then commanded to walk in righteousness or to be holy as God is holy. So we started by asking, are we, are, are we ignoring tax? Are we picking and choosing? Well, there is a sense in which I can't even live up to my own expectations, much less God's. So, a lot of times when people say, you know what, the church is full of hypocrites and snakes. I think, well, in some sense that's true, but we got, you know, I joke, we got room for one more. So slither on in and join us. We can freely admit that. We don't have to justify ourselves before men. But the charge doesn't stick then that you are a hypocrite because you eat pork, but you also want to hold to something like biblical sexual ethics. See, true hypocrisy is not refusing to live under the old covenant. True hypocrisy is thinking that I can, and I should. Why? Because Jesus has fulfilled the law on our behalf. So if you've seen that meme floating around and think, man, what's going on there? I, I used to tell our teenagers this, and I, I don't want to be rude or crass, but I would say, here's how you can tell somebody doesn't know the Bible and they haven't read it. If they say you're a hypocrite because you eat pork. You're not a hypocrite for not eating pork or for eating pork. 
You'd be a hypocrite if you thought you could obey and fulfill the law and earn God's righteousness. Because Jesus has fulfilled the law on our behalf. He kept it perfectly, not offending the Father in any point. Yet He died the death that the law required for those who broke it. In my place, condemned He stood. Now His nearness, through the work of Christ, now His nearness is my good. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You for Your Word. It challenges us both to rejoice in our salvation and to aim to please and glorify You. May we, may we do so with our lives and with our desires, the attitudes of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.